You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. Uh, We're in the middle of another intense week in presidential politics, and uh, we're going to talk about much of it in this episode. First, want to Give a shout out. I've done a stream of events uh, over the last few weeks, including was at Ball State earlier this week in Indiana and met some listeners of the podcast. So I uh, want to thank y'all for listening. Thanks for showing up to my events. I'll, I'll try and do a better job on the podcast of giving folks a, a preview of my, my calendar so that if you're a listener in a, a town I'm going to be in, uh, that, that we'll have the opportunity to meet because I, I, I do love meeting fans of of the podcast and so uh, i really enjoyed my time at ball state as well i finished the event at ball state on on wednesday night Uh, i got out probably at like 10 o'clock after talking with folks uh after the event (laughs) so i pull up twitter and uh, y'all are usually crazy um but (laughs) i could tell something else was going on (laughs) because Folks were flipping out over the debate, and for for good reason. It was to use the term, it was a slobber knocker. I mean, it was it was uh, it was something something else. Elizabeth, you know, so I had seen the clip of Senator Warren going after Bloomberg to start the debate, and so I knew that was coming. But it was really something else to see. You know, she clearly obviously planned that that line knew exactly what she wanted to say and if you watch like the first you know minute of the debate the moderators were trying to set up something between between Bloomberg and Sanders and how eager Senator Warren was to jump in uh her insistence on jumping in and her ability to accomplish that and deliver just such a clean Clean hit to start the debate. I think, I think really set the tone, uh, for, for the evening. We're going to talk about the debate a little bit with our excellent guest for this episode, uh, Reverend, uh, Gabriel Salguero, uh, who is a longtime friend, someone I respect a great deal. I'll tell you a bit more about him. So we won't get too far into the debate. I, I will just say, I think Elizabeth Warren had a great night. I think, uh, it has been noted, and I've noted, you know, I think especially after Cory Booker dropped out, it allowed the small but, like, acknowledgeable progressive faith activist cohort to kind of coalesce around around her. And so we've seen that transpire over the last week or two. She is, you listened to the debate last night, and she is talking about the issues like uh, advocacy person for one of the mainline denominations on Maryland Avenue would in D.C. So uh, for those of you who don't know, all the mainline advocacy government affairs offices are on Maryland Avenue. So they all basically work in in like the, the same block, uh, often the same building. And so the question is always, you know, just to be just to be direct about it, like those mainline offices often have a hard time convincing their own members to view politics in that way. And so th- there's um, there's a real question about the kind of pickup that some of Warren's rhetoric around issues is going to have. And we'll, we'll have to see. I, so I do think that she 
she'll see a bump from that debate. Her performance was just too good, both both on issues. And to be clear, I think she was she was really tactical and and coherent. Sounds like a under it is an understatement, but coherent when it came to policy issues. I mean, it, especially that first hour, it, it was just very cogent uh, debating the the kind of cogency that that we've typically only seen in these debates, at least from the people left standing, from Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but uh, Senator Warren came came prepared and was was on her A game. Um, unfortunately, I think she'll get a bump, but that bump actually is not going to be reflected entirely in Nevada. It's uh, Nevada has had early vote. The vast majority of Nevadans who will be uh, voting in the caucus will have voted before Saturday, and a major we'll see what turnout looks like. But it's likely that a majority voted before the debate. And so there is a chance that a narrative could build that, well, she gave her best shot at the debate, but you know maybe she only comes in third, maybe she only comes in fourth. And it's like, well, that, that was the best she had, and, and voters didn't reward her for it. And I, I think a fourth-place finish for Elizabeth Warren in Nevada would be, would be, would be tough. Uh, you do start to think that there's got to be some pressure out on these candidates to drop out. I'd say the same, you know, Amy Klobuchar was riding high uh, just recently uh, with her sort of comeback in New Hampshire. She has two very rough states ahead of her that, you know, we've talked about how the order has disadvantaged some candidates, especially of having two small uh, overwhelmingly white states to lead off the the primary process. What we may find is that the power of that is matched or even exceeded by having Nevada and South Carolina lead into Super Tuesday. I mean, you know, Amy Klobuchar's third place finish in New Hampshire. Heck, even if Pete Buttigieg's finishes in Iowa and New Hampshire could be long forgotten by the time that we even get to, to real votes taking place of, of, you know, significant percentage of overall delegates being awarded. Uh, and so the the order of the primary states may not play out to advantage to be so singularly advantageous to candidates performing well with white voters and nobody else as some of the conversation up to this point has been or sort of characterized things as being. So we'll, we'll see. Warren was obviously, I think, the most interesting person, interesting candidate in the debate last night. Uh, uh, Bloomberg, there's everything that we knew about Bloomberg and I guess had to be reminded. I was a little surprised by how antagonistic some of the candidates were in a way that they never brought to Tom Steyer, even though Tom Steyer is, you know, pulling double digits in some of these states, um, but antagonistic in a way that, that uh, they never were towards Tom Steyer. I mean, the the antagonism, the antipathy towards Bloomberg uh, and the way he's spending money in this race and the money that he has was just was just really striking. And I, I'm interested to see how that plays. I mean, w- one thing to remember is, like, 
And so Pete Buttigieg jumps in and says, I, you know, I'm the, I'm the only one on this stage that isn't a millionaire. We just have to remember, like, one of the lessons of Trump is, like, that's not always rewarded by voters. Like, Pete's trying to say, like, I'm closer to your reality. I'm closer to where you want to be. You've got to remember a significant number of voters, even Democratic voters, and especially voters who will be voting in the Democratic primary, they 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 want to start a business and be Tom Steyer, be Mike Bloomberg. The fact that people the judge hasn't earned money, the fact that Joe Biden made his his joke about his his book being the first time he's made money in his life. Again, I think there's a significant percentage, of, like I think of folks around where I grew up, and I could see a in Buffalo in the Rust Belt, and I could see a clear split. There, there would be some folks from the very same community who would say, "Yeah, I want, I want someone I could who who knows how, how regular people are," and then the the buddy next to him, you know, saying, "No, I, I want someone who's been successful. What do I want a regular person in the White House for?" And so it's it's interesting. I'm I'm not sure. I'd be interested to to. Uh, see some some focus groups on uh, how that dynamic is playing out. Whether attacks on Bloomberg for his on his wealth and sort of how his wealth might influence his political views. I'd be interested to see how compelling uh, uh, that that is to, to voters and into which voters and which demographics that is uh, that is most compelling. I think I think there might be some surprises there. Uh, but Bloomberg, I mean, he's just in for. A rough ride when he's not protected or behind hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising. The challenge is just going to be: can any and and this was a challenge of the debate. Can anyone penetrate and take down Bloomberg behind his hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising, and at the same time prevent Bernie from jumping far, far out ahead of this race? And that's going to be. That, that that's a hard thing to do. There was some promise, you know, when you when you saw Biden and Warren tag teaming on Bloomberg around the NDAs, you know, that might be a picture of the kinds of partnerships that might have to be necessary between the candidates to try and knock down both Bloomberg and Bernie, right? Like a big test is just going to be whether there's enough trust or willingness or a sense of a shared mission for the candidates to work in that way, at least for a moment, at least for a, a duration, and then they can get back to fighting with each other. I, I just don't think things are going to coalesce that, that way. The, the, the real, look, here's going to be the determining factor, potentially of this entire primary, which is we have Nevada and South Carolina. The results from those states if they're such that they force at least Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, or Klobuchar from dropping out, and I'll throw Steyer into the mix too, dropping out, preferably, you know, if 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 you're preferably in the sense of if you're talking from the perspective of having an alternative to Bloomberg, Bernie, uh, some people don't want that. So, right, it's like not preferably for them, but preferably if you want an alternative to Bernie and Bloomberg, you need someone dropping out before Super Tuesday. If we go into Super Tuesday with the field as it is, it becomes very, becomes much more difficult to see uh, how how Bernie's lead uh, is is going to be 
how he will not get at least a very strong plurality of of delegates. And then when it comes to Bloomberg, he's spending enough money in these Super Tuesday states. He's going to be able to perform moderately well across the board. And so if the if the non-Bernie vote is, you know, taken up by the support Bloomberg gets and then split up between Warren, Biden, Steyer, Buttigieg, Club, it's just not going to happen. So so that's what I'm looking for. Things that could lead candidates to drop out. I think Biden loses South Carolina. Um, he probably has to drop out. Maybe a close second and he decides to take the fight to some of the Rust Belt states in on Super Tuesday. I I I think that might might be a little little tough. Um, it, it was good to see him in the debate fighting. He was more strategic than I've seen him. I thought he was. I thought he was. He had a very good debate, and so that that was promising. It'll be something to build on for next week, leading into South Carolina. But if Biden doesn't win South Carolina, I think it's going to be there's at least going to be a significant conversation about what what his future in this campaign looks like in Nevada. If Elizabeth Warren gets fourth, I, I think there ha- has to be serious conversations about her dropping out, and then with Buttigieg. And Klobuchar, if both of them can't, if if either of them can't get top three in either Nevada or South Carolina, then I think it leads to questions for the, for their campaigns as well. Even Buttigieg, even with his performance in Iowa, New Hampshire, I think it'll just embed further the notion that this is this is someone who has a a, a limited appeal to basically college educated white white folks. Klobuchar may need to may need to do a little bit better than Buttigieg in order to stay in, but we'll see about that. And then Steyer, I don't know. I mean, it's just a matter of how much of this for Steyer is a pure ego trip, or uh, how much of this is he's staying in because he is showing promise in a state like South Carolina, and uh, he wants to see if his numbers hold up there, and and maybe he gets top three in South Carolina and. Uh, you know, he's not going to be the nominee, uh, but, you know, internally to the campaign with all the biases that they have, like there's there's a there's a difference between it being a pure ego trip and like uh, an ego trip with a strategy, at least like with with some kind of limiting principles. Like, you know, if we don't get top three in South Carolina, we're dropping out. Uh, we'll just have to see. All right. Well, <laughs> it's uh going to be interesting to see how Nevada turns out. If it turns out, there are rumblings that there are concerns about how they'll count the vote in Nevada, just like they had issues in Iowa. So we'll see how that turns out. Thankfully for Democrats, it is over the weekend. So it is the kind of thing where like as long as they haven't figured out by Monday morning, you know, it won't be too big of a a press deal, but hopefully for their sakes, they, they have answers Saturday night. But they're put they're they're putting out some some kind of trial balloons to suggest that may not be the case. All right, when we get back, I'm going to introduce uh, our guest for this episode, who I'm very excited about. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. We're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast, and I'm thrilled to have. 
uh, as our guest on this episode, uh, the Reverend Gabriel Salguero. He's the president of the National Latino Evangelical Coalition, co-lead pastor of the Lambs Church in New York with his wife, uh, Reverend uh, Jeanette Salguero. Uh, he's uh, a board member at Sojourners. Uh, he speaks all over the country. He's one of the most respected and looked to uh, Christian leaders, uh, 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 Latino leaders, in the country, and, and it, as we talk about, uh, you know, he, he's very much in both worlds and respected uh, in both worlds among politicians and advocates generally for the for the insight that he brings, for the wisdom he brings, for the intellect he brings, for the leadership he brings, uh, for the grassroots sort of force that he. He, he has and that he brings to fruition. And so it, it's, I'm very glad that we're able to talk to him, especially at this moment. This race is about to move to Nevada, which we're going to talk about. And then Super Tuesday, there are some states on Super Tuesday. Uh, obviously, when we get to California, the Latino vote is going to be determinative. And so, gosh, I, I, I could talk so much about this interview. We just recorded it. It was a great conversation. I feel like I want to tee it up in eight different ways, and I could do that. But instead, just listen in and try and keep your ear tuned to particular kinds of notes that uh, and ideas that Reverend Salguero hits on that uh, I think might be surprising to folks and, and will help you see 2020 more clearly through the lens of faith and in the case of this interview uh, deep insight into uh, the Hispanic community as we approach states where they're going to be uh, well represented. This is my interview with Reverend Gabriel Salguero. Well hello Rev, thanks so much for joining the Faith 2020 podcast, so great to have you on with us. Always a pleasure. We've worked together for such a long time and just come to respect you so much for your ministry, for your insight, uh, for your leadership of the NLEC and and uh, just so grateful for you and glad that you could be on, on the podcast. I, I know we're, we're recording this just a, a day after uh, the Nevada debate, which was uh, quite quite an affair. Would love to just sort of want to have a, a bit of a broader conversation, but but since we're talking just in the wake of this debate with the Nevada caucus, people are voting now. The Nevada caucus will you know is officially held on uh, this coming Saturday. Would just uh, uh, love to hear from you what, what you thought of the debate. Do you do you think anyone moved moved the needle? Did did, did you feel like? Nevada voters and specifically was there anything that came up that, that you think you're, the folks who are members of, of your organization uh, were particularly attentive to? Well, first, I, I think that we were excited that finally Nevada's on the map. 29% of folks from Nevada are Hispanic and so some of our issues I think came to the fore. I think that our, our concerns both immigration and uh, health care Poverty. I think those issues come to the fore in some of the earlier caucuses or primaries because we weren't as represented in the constituency and the voters and and uh, stakeholders. Our issues can be overlooked. So we're glad that they came to to Nevada, where uh, almost a third of, of Nevadians are are Hispanic. And so I think that that's important. I think that for us. Uh, as Latinos, Latinas living in the United States, where one out of every four children are born, some of the issues around health care 
and education always come to the forefront as even we've been talking about uh, immigration. I think some of the assumptions are there is that Hispanics only vote about immigration, which is a big priority, but issues of uh, addressing uh, root causes of poverty and educational in- inequity are also key. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that, that finally in Nevada, some of those issues are coming to the floor. Just that last bit of what you said, I think might surprise some folks in, in multiple directions. The first thing is, uh, immigration is uh, an important issue for Latino voters, but a there's great disparity in the in the uh, emphasis that's placed based on a number of factors, including generation uh, how how long y- you've been here, whether you're a, a first generation immigrant or a, your family history in this country goes way back. So that's one distinction. Uh, uh, just in terms of the emphasis folks place. And then there's actually a diversity of views on the issue itself within the Hispanic community that folks are sometimes not aware of. I've heard it explained to me as immigration acting as something as like a, like a gatekeeper issue. Like like folks are going to get a sense if, if you're, anti-immigrant that uh, an anti-immigration that, that you might not have their best interests in heart when it, when it comes to health care and education and other issues that the most liberal immigration policy isn't always the winner within uh, with Latino and Latina voters is that right is that is that your experience yeah I think that what you're pointing to is is very important for candidates uh, at every level national statewide, local level, which is Hispanics, Latinos, Latinas are not a monolith. Two-thirds of Hispanics living in the U.S. were born in the U.S. So actually, and are English dominant, one-third are either recent arrivals or arrived, um, you know, in the last decade or so, they're immigrants. And so that's the first thing that we have to see. And then think about the diversity of of Hispanicity or Latinidad in America, right? Cubans in Miami and and El Salvadorians in the Maryland, Virginia area, and Puerto Ricans in Orlando and Kissimmee and, and New York and Mexican Americans in Texas and 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 Guatemalans in, in in Illinois and Chicago. And so the diversity, the diversity is one of the things that candidates should be paying attention to. And that we're nuanced. I think that sometimes there's an underestimation to the political sophistication of the Latina Latino voter that, that they think we only watch uh, Telemundo or Univision to get our media coverage, but we also watch uh, CNN and BBC, and and because we're bilingual and bicultural, we have nuanced views of the immigration debate. That that as you know, we've had these conversations over coffee or on panels. In, in different forums that we really want people who have, understand the nuance of Hispanicity uh, in America, that understand that uh, xenophobic language or rhetoric alienates the Hispanic voter, no matter who or he, he or she is, whether they're uh, a recent immigrant or their fourth or fifth generation Hispanic. I'm, I'm a Jersey Rican. I was born in New Jersey of Puerto Rican parents. And, and so People in the congregation I serve, it's about 5,000 people, or in our coalition of 3,000 churches, they they were, represent the broad swath of U.S. Hispanicity, and that we're not monolithic voters. And, and that, I think, is important for campaigns to know, for pundits to know, for political reporters to know, and for faith leaders who are addressing that, 
that broad diversity of U.S. ethnicity. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's really important. I, I think the other thing that that folks might find surprising is the fact that the the vote is often not heavily democratic. You look at, for instance, the exit polls out of the uh, Ted Cruz, uh, Beto O'Rourke race. And, I, uh, you know, I think you, you show many, I don't think you were surprised. I don't think your members were surprised. You, you show those numbers to sort of democratic activists who have a certain idea about uh, who, who uh, uh, Hispanic community is supposed to quote, supposed to vote for. And I think folks would be surprised to see that in, in a lot of these, uh, in a lot of, uh, of races around the country, uh, Democrats typically win the Hispanic vote, but it's often 65, 35, 60, 40, and nothing like what we see with the African-American vote, for instance. Um, and so t- talk a, a little bit about about that, especially in this sort of era of the Republican Party in the in the Trump era, um, what what are the the cross pressures that that Hispanic voters are feeling when when they go to the polls? Uh, why why is there this split? Obviously, that the community is not a monolith, so just ideological diversity is something that you're going to find in any community. But just speak a little bit to what some of the poll might be. Look, I think that you're, you're, you rightly posit and underline. Let, let's just look at, at two, two senators that are both Cuban-America, Cuban-American. Senator Bob Menendez, Cuban-America, Democrat, Foreign Relations Committee in New Jersey, and Senator Marco Rubian, Rubio, Cuban-American, Republican in the U.S. Senate. And they're both Cuban-American. And uh, this is an interesting dynamic that just, if you just analyze that, or or Susana Martinez and others who worked within the Republican Party, and and the, the assumption that Hispanics are going to vote one way is to mischaracterize the, as you say, the tensions they live in. For example, I, I serve a Hispanic evangelical community. NALEC is the National Latino Evangelical Coalition. Hispanic evangelicals have been uh, seen as the quintessential swing voter. In Florida, for example, a a swing state, you can have over 35% who are registered non-party affiliated, sometimes called independent in other states, because they historically lean uh, because of faith, uh, whether they're Catholic, Roman Catholic, or evangelical, Pentecostal, there's a social conservatism around issues of family and issues of of life, even though there may be a, a progressive bent on issues of economic, uh, racial justice, policing, uh, international aid, uh, the budget, uh, um, uh, uh, issues of poverty and economic development. And so the issue is how do these Hispanic voters, especially Hispanic faith voters, uh, see the priorities of issues? Are they going to vote? around uh, issues, uh, social issues, or are they going to ro- vote around economic issues? And you often see uh, that tension. And that's why many, many Hispanics, a growing number of Hispanics are registering independent. And what I would like to say is it would be a critical mistake for any party to take Hispanics for granted or to assume, as you said, you said the numbers, you can see 65, 35, you can see uh, 60, 40, or, or, or some combination of that, which some voting a third party candidate. And so the, 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 
the astute political observer who understands both Hispanicity and faith voters, right? Because we're I'm in the nexus of that kind of, I'm a Hispanic and I'm an evangelical leader. The, the nexus of Hispanicity and faith, it has you vote around a menu, if you will, a buffet of issues. And so if you, the Hispanic voter, you I would say is probably one of the most centrist voters. They try to eschew uh, extremism, uh, both in rhetoric and in policy. So they, they in many ways are, are, uh, they mimic what some pundits have labeled middle America, this kind of centrist voter. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask again, I know this can be a difficult question, but just as, as you're, as you're talking with folks, as you've engaged with campaigns, who do you think is doing the work? Not just, I mean, like you said, that, the community's diverse and different states, yet you have to think about the Hispanic vote differently. Who, who do you think is doing the best job of approaching the diversity of the Hispanic vote in a way that respects the community and, and also, you know, bodes well for their campaign? Yeah, well, full transparency, Michael, I have uh, talked to most of the Democratic candidates uh Campaigns, so the Biden campaign, the Buttig- I've actually spoken directly to Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the Warren campaign, and and the Sanders campaign. I've spoken to a, a surrogate or a principal in each case. But I, let, let me give you an example in Florida, for example. In Florida, the the Evangelicals for Trump campaign was launched at a Hispanic megachurch, uh, and then a week later, Vice President Pence came to a a mid-sized Hispanic evangelical church in Kissimmee, the, the central Florida. And so there has been some some initial uh, efforts by the Trump-Pence team to reach out to Hispanic evangelical faith voters. And, and that's been going on for some time now. In terms of, of the Democratic candidates, I think uh, around issues of poverty uh, and issues of economic development, I think that most of the candidates have been pretty good on that in terms of saying, hey, this is a value, whether we agree with the political uh, policy recommendations and the minutia, that, that yet determined. But I think at least they're aware that this is an issue. And certainly, certainly on the issue of immigration, both, both rhetoric and policy, I think that there is a heightened attention to this reality, given uh, how some Hispanic uh, community and faith leaders like myself have expressed publicly and privately concerns about rhetoric demonizing uh, Hispanic immigrants or, or any immigrants, Asians, and and the and the even the the attempt to alter quite severely legal uh, migration and legal immigration and and the welcoming of, of refugees. All of that is part of the conversation, and I think that's part of it. But I do think that more attention needs to. Uh, be paid to issues of ec- uh, ec- economics. Uh, I think uh, I would like to hear more uh, around Puerto Rico uh, post Hurricane Maria. The the development of the infrastructure is not there. Aid was held up for some time, although some have been released more recently, uh, over a billion dollars. But even even in among both parties, there's not a lot of of noise being made uh, post. Earthquakes and, and, and even as we speak today, Puerto Rico is still suffering from, from aftershocks and tremors that have destabilized 
the southern part of the island. And I don't see it as a priority, even though the several hundred thousand Puerto Ricans have relocated from the island into central Florida, New York, and Houston, Texas, just to give examples. And, and here's, here's a place people might not be aware of, North and South Carolina, uh, where, where there's a growing population of Hispanics. So what I'm saying is that there are many issues that for one reason or another, when there are Latino, Latina, Hispanic, Latinx engagement, particularly with issues of, of Puerto Rico, uh, which, which are U.S. citizens and also developing them in the Northern Triangle, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras that, uh, need a, a megaphone. And, and if candidates don't raise that, I think that what happens is there's a danger of Hispanic disengagement or apathy when it comes to the elections. That's that's a really helpful overview. Gives our listeners quite a lot to pay attention to. Again, not just running up to uh, Nevada, but California is on the docket, which is going to play a significant role in, I think, deciding the trajectory of this primary. And then, uh, obviously, you know, as the race moves to New Jersey, your state, Florida. Your insight there about the Carolinas is is very interesting and something that 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 we're we're going to want to be attentive to. So I I really really appreciate that. Rev, what would be and you've already spoken to this, but just sort of final question here: What would be the major recommendation that you'd give to to both President Trump and, uh, and to the Democratic candidates as they think about? Let's go specifically with with your constituency, with with Latino evangelicals, uh, as they think about uh, speaking to, to to your folks and, and earning votes uh, through the primary and and in through the general. I, I would first say, don't take us for granted. Don't assume we're going to vote one way or another. Engage us, uh, listen to us. I think that Latino evangelicals, what we're saying is not so much uh, we're going to endorse any candidate. What we're saying is what candidates are going to endorse our policy priorities. And number two, be broad in your analysis of, of Hispanic evangelical voters. Address the, the broad array of our issues. Number three, avoid extremism. Uh, avoid the political extremes. I think Hispanic evangelical voters uh, tend to be centrist in that regard. And when you address us, I think that that has to be part of the equation. Uh, number four, I would say, remember that Hispanic voters are paying attention to uh, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean and to Latin America and 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 what what we're doing with with USAID, what we're doing with with FEMA uh, after natural disasters. That there is a very heightened sensibility uh, because we have. Uh, churches, uh, sister churches in those places. And we have uh, people that we love there and, and we're paying uh, attention to that. I would add that just because immigration is not a, uh, uh, is not our only priority. I think that language around immigration, uh, both language and policy around Im- immigration is, is very important to us. You know, we've been at this thing for, I don't know. Over a decade, you know, and, 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 um, I was in DC when the Senate, uh, the, the gang of eight dropped the bill and it was approved in the Senate, but never came to a vote in the House. And, and we're finally going to say, who's going to take leadership and move this, uh, down? And let me, and, and we're paying attention to what the Supreme Court is going to have to say about that, uh, 
uh, in the next couple of months and, and how uh, Congress uh, and, the, and the administration or the candidates are going to respond to this. We, we remember hearing very clearly that there was going to be a beautiful bill on DACA and we haven't seen Congress or the administration move on that. And so those 800,000 or so uh, dreamers are, are important to us. And so if I put that whole menu before for you, that includes both social issues about uh, religious liberty and, 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 and issues of life, as even we talk about poverty, immigration, educational equity, criminal justice reform, uh, foreign aid, and, and, and addressing root causes of poverty like SNAP and CHIP, uh, I think you, you have a sense of, of, of uh, political priorities in, in our communities. That's helpful. I, I do. You raised it. And so I do have just one more question for you because it came up so often in the debates last night. Was it a mistake? And, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. But what, was it a mistake for Senator Sanders to vote against uh, the comprehensive uh, immigration reform bill towards the end of the Bush administration? Look, I think that we cannot allow, whether it's Senator Sanders or any other elected official, to have the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think you, those of us who are students, it is African-American History Month, even as we move in towards Women's History Month. Those of us who know about movements, the civil rights movement, the, the women's suffragists movement, the abolitionist movement, know that there are incremental steps. And if we have an all or nothing policy and we in a hyper partisan, hyper uh, politicized environment, uh, do not take incremental steps, what Dr. King called approximations of justice, moving closer to justice, we often can set things back. And so I've seen that at, at state legislatures, and I've seen that uh, uh, in the House and in the Senate. I, I remember speaking to, in that time, Speaker Boehner and, and, and others and saying, hey, look, is any of this legislation exactly all that we want? No, but we need to get closer. Uh, inertia uh, is not our friend uh, because there are real people. I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. That's what I do. I'm not a politician. I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm a registered independent, like many Hispanic evangelicals in the United States. I'm concerned that because we're hyper-partisan or, or, and we let inertia get in, in the way of moving forward legislation that may not be perfect, but is a step in the direction that helps people who, who are vulnerable. Well, thank you for that. We have maybe eight months left in left in this campaign. I think maybe a little little less. I want you to know that you always have. A, if you need to get a message out to the campaigns, I know you have your own channels, but we just love to hear from you. If if you see things moving in this race that are helpful or not so helpful, uh, our, our audience wants to know about it, and, and uh, I, I always want to hear from you. So thanks for being a guest. Hopefully we'll have you back on uh, as we get closer to the general. And uh, again, just so grateful for you and what you do. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for, you know, I, I really appreciate this podcast. I think it's it's nuanced. It's informative. It's it's getting a, a variety of voices, which is what we need uh, in the middle of these elections, that we have the breadth of, of, of the U.S. electorate on it. And yeah. I want to thank you for your leadership in that regard. Hey, thank you, sir. All right. It was great to have you with us. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks again to Reverend Gabriel Salguero. 
uh, for that interview. Uh, you can catch up with him uh, through his organization, National Latino Evangelical Coalition. He, he writes quite a bit. You, you can find videos of him speaking. He's just he's just one of the when I think about religious leaders that are able to swim in different streams that are respected broadly, not just within their particular silo, that are focused on actually getting things done and not just sort of building a platform for themselves, someone with a real heart for service that's in civic life for the right reasons. I think of, I think of Reverend Salguero. So, uh, uh, check, uh, ch- uh, try and, try and stay up with him. He's a voice that, that you should be, you should be listening to. All right, folks. Look, uh, like I said, we're, we're moving to weekly episodes now. Uh, I think this week is like a, a perfect example why uh, this this race is really really picking up, uh, and we'll see if this is sort of the climax. Like this is the highest point of tension now, and over the next two weeks, and then after Super Tuesday, we just sort of plateau out, or it could just be a, a you know a climb from here. Uh, either way, we'll be with you. Hey, thank you for listening. As always, would urge you to leave a review on iTunes so that folks can find this podcast a little bit easier. Let your friends know you listen to it and appreciate it uh, throughout the week. If you want more analysis from me and my wife, Melissa, who was a previous guest on this podcast, we do a newsletter available at reclaiminghope.substack.com. And uh, it's a great way for us to stay in conversation in between episodes. All right. Have a good week. We'll be watching these returns uh, this weekend together. And you'll hear from me next week. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast.